Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Joanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. I can't stop laughing. I've been thinking all day about how I was going to look at you and we were going to get very serious about the podcast and then I would remember that you wrote the word feeding stroller. I don't understand why you, like, why that's so funny. Like, over text, when I called it a feeding stroller, you and Lorella, or you, pointed out to Lorella and then you made fun of me. (laughs) This is, of course, in relation to that hilarious gift of a video of that um, it was a BBC interview with a man. I'm sure you've all seen it by now, but a man who was doing a live interview talking about the impeachment of the South Korean president, a very serious topic. <laughs> his kids decide to crash the party. Like they sashay in. Like Tina Literally sashay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's still funny to me. But the product in question that the that the baby motors in on, like really fast. Okay, this baby, the boss baby, you mean. <laughs> the, the kid who was like, hey, wait a minute, my big sister just sashayed in and made such an entrance. I have to live up to the entrance. Comes in on his fucking feeding stroller. <laughs> Uh, like a boss, that kid. And then I called it a feeding stroller and you guys laughed at me. What do you want me to call it? It had a tray. It had a tray. Yeah, no, I get it. But why do you think somebody needs a feeding stroller? That's my first question. What purpose do you think it serves? I don't have a child. I thought that maybe it would be one of those knickknacks that parents have where you can like have the child mobile while you <coughs> nourish it. Okay, so that is actually exactly what it is. Um, it's also thank you. It's yeah. It's not called a feeding stroller, but it, that's what it, its purpose is. No, it, to its stroll is, and feed. No, its purpose is to stroll. Period. Uh, things can go on the tray that are not food, like uh, toys or whatnot. Uh, they're also super illegal in North America. Because, of course, uh, kids tend to toddle over to the stairs and, you know, yeah. take off down them. But feeding stroller is one of my more favorite things that you've ever said. Not least because you could just feed kids in a regular stroller if that was the uh, thing. Whatever. It had a tray. Anyway, I suspect I, – I keep, I keep hearing this, that the feeding stroller is illegal in North America. But then again, it's more common in North America to have stairs in homes. And my presumption is that – that academic who was being interviewed was based in Asia, and most people in Asia that I know anyway live in apartments. They don't have that issue. Agreed uh, that uh, I think they're probably fine in bungalows. Um, And yeah, they call them walkers. And this… See, 
okay. continues to be amazing. Not to get too particular, but when I think of a walker, yes, I think of the old, the elderly person, yes, you know who yeah. has because my mother has several walkers, right? Being a disabled person, right? She and you can imagine my mother's walkers are tricked out in various ways. I actually read something online about a really stylish walker recently. But Thank anyway, you. Go on. Yes. So when I see Walker, I see it not for a baby, but for the opposite, for the elderly. Right. I would argue that it serves the same purpose for both. It is for somebody who can walk with some assistance. Okay. It's a feeding stroller. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, that video continues to be the best thing ever. And I love… I also… If you guys haven't checked it out, you should check out… His name is Robert Kelly. Right. And… The man is so amazingly earnest and pure that he didn't know that he had gone viral after he had gone viral. It was amazing, right? It's amazing. And just check out his Twitter feed. Also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they got to interview his mom who lives in Ohio before they interviewed him. And she was like, he's asleep. He knows nothing. (laughs) Um, Anyway, big ups to Robert Kelly his two awesome children, (laughs) and his most awesome wife. (laughs) Who, somebody said, did a risky business slide. Or a Kramer. (laughs) To close the door. Anyway, um, I don't know. Is that going to be old by the time you all listen to this? Absolutely, but still worth it because I, come on, how many times have you laughed at that? Yeah, no. Like I said, I've probably by this point watched it 40 times. Um, and if you count gifts, I've probably watched it 150 times because um, they've gift the shit out of this thing now. Right. And I mean, this is what's amazing, right? This is now our global entertainment. This is what everybody's watching. It's not like St. Elsewhere. It's we're all watching this one minute long program that is the new national favorite. Imagine if there were ratings. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so… That's what we do here, though. We talk about what we watch. Here's another one of my great segues, Yasik. Coming. I'm geared up. <laughs> Yasik hates my segues. Or no, no. He hates when we mention the segue. Um, anyway, uh, let's get to the biggest movie coming out this week, which, of course, on Friday, the release of Beauty and the Beast, the live-action version starring, well, I mean, the the star of the movie is Emma Watson. Right. But here's the thing. Before we go to talk about what we're talking about, here's my question to you. Has Have the stars and the stories and the scandals, which we're about to get to, are they eclipsing this movie? Like, is there anything to see at this point? With our, Can we just go on having stories about Emma Watson and uh, her co-stars and everybody else? I have clicked on a bath product as mentioned by Emma Watson in a news story this week and purchased it. That's how Was much- it like the pussy hair oil? Because <laughs> you heard about that, right? I did. Why? Yeah. Did you buy that? No, I, I, I would buy it. Yeah, I'm sent offensive. It's fine. Um, I would buy it, although I would buy it more out of just to see what it is because, of course, I don't have any pussy hair. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm making you uncomfortable now. Well, you don't I like, just wasn't going to segue don't like it here. when I talk about my pussy. It is. No, I don't have any <laughs> pussy problems. Um, I'm also removing a dog from my <laughs> hand as we speak. But it was a bath product. 
product. Uh, it's a an oil that you put in the bath when you have a cold, and it makes you feel less congested. And I was like, well, I need this. So I'm paying a lot in shipping and duty to own Emma this. Watson's bath oil? Emma Watson's bath oil. Yes, exactly. So my point is, I know everything about her, including what kind of oil she puts on her pussy. And indeed, the fact that she has pussy hair, since we're yeah. getting and she there. conditions it. Right. Yeah. So, or oils it, if you will. So. So, Emma Watson. So, your question was whether or not all the extracurricular information, news, whatever, surrounding Emma Watson and Beauty and the Beast has eclipsed the actual movie. Are we at enough already? Um, because, of course, the big story that I want to talk about from 16 different angles uh, was the pushback that she received from the pictures that appeared in Vanity Fair of 10 pictures of her in sort of soldier-esque uh, military garb and one picture in which she is wearing a a bolero or a bed jacket with nothing underneath and you can see the curve of a breast. And the internet lost its mind and decided that Emma Watson didn't get to be called a feminist anymore. Right. Which you wrote about. I sure did. You wrote about um, and you uh, talked very articulately about you can be both. You can be sexy and you can want to look sexy and you can want equality between the sexes. Oh my Christ, absolutely. And you can want all those things and still A, want to take a beautiful picture, B, think that your breasts are awesome or sexy or both. Let's call them tits. Because you had issue with um, blanking out tits. Okay, so yes, I did. So yes, I very, I very eruditely referred to her breasts. But later on, when Emma Watson was talking about the bullshit that this was, she said, I don't know what my tits have to do with feminism. And everybody beeped tits or they censored it or put like an asterisk in it. And the interview in which she said it, tits was bleeped as though she had said cunt. As though it was something that was worth bleeping. Yeah, I mean, it was as if tits, like, we dash out fuck, cunt, shit. That's probably the only thing, that's probably the only three that we dash out. Fuck, cunt, shit. And on as, Laney Gossip. As you've been talking, I googled uh, George Carlin, of all people, to speak on feminism, um, saying the seven dirty words that you can't say on television. Oh, what are they? In 1972, and he said they were shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So tits is still? That was 1972. So that tits was... has been, I feel, m m kind of removed from the list now for the most part, right? I everything really, else I mean, no. Piss, no piss. Piss you is okay. You can absolutely say piss. You can say shit on some television at some time. Certainly on cable, you can say all of those things. But on network broadcast television, I feel like you can say shit maybe once after 9 p.m. I think that's okay. And I would also say you can probably get away with cocksucker. Uh, little known fact, <laughs> when you are dealing with network notes um, and even cable networks that aren't like network networks still have, still give notes, sometimes they will barter and trade for words so, for example, 
Okay, you can we act this out? Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, <laughs> so in my script, yes. I have a cunt. Right. So what are you offering me? Well, I might say you can't say cunt, and you would say, well, I have to say cunt. Yeah. And I would say, okay, you can say cunt once, but you cannot then say fuck on page 57 and page 15. You okay. have to give me at least one of those back. So if you're giving me one cunt and a no fuck zone for 40 pages, right? then in episode two, can I do a fuck shit and a cocksucker within the first 10 pages? I mean, that might be a fun negotiation, but my understanding <laughs> is that it goes, it's back to ones at the beginning of every episode. Okay. Every network executive wants nothing harsher than a damn you, ma. Uh, to go through. Okay. But, uh, and this is why when you're watching The Breakfast Club on TBS, you're sort of watching idly while you're dusting and then you hear, flip you, dad. <laughs> that was such a good John Bender voice. Thank you. I, I enjoy that John Bender myself. Well, after that tit tangent, what we're talking about though is Emma Watson being called out on her so-called presumed weak feminism because she decided to pose in Vanity Fair in whatever, a titty top, and people were calling back to a previous interview that she gave, um, or that she did, not gave, but that she did, in which she supposedly, maybe, sort of, kind of, but not sure, called out Beyonce for... Uh, Beyonce's suggestive posing and Beyonce's provocative clothing in the self-titled album. Okay, so let's right? unpack. Yeah, let's unpack this a little bit. Yeah. One of the things that was uh, so offensive to me about the bleeping of tits was that it made it seem so much dirtier than it was. Do you remember when uh, Madonna released the sex book and it was packaged in plastic wrap and you couldn't see it and you had to wait for somebody to see it? Yes. And then when you finally got hold of that book, were you not a little disappointed because it seemed like such a bigger deal than it turned out to be? Like, I thought that there would be like a dildo like right up in her mouth and that someone was getting like ass fucked and but it was literally just Madonna posing in various places like the highway that's the or one by, I remember too yeah the yeah. highway with her top off that's and right. wearing shorts yeah in one picture right. she's nude like pretending to hitch a ride yeah and her, oh well and her breasts were magnificent sure and, and little, that was it yeah and like so and it was beautiful this is what kills me and this is why I think it was so wrong to have that word be bleeped because it implied a much bigger, more pornographic uh, outlay than what amounted to Emma Watson showing a little tiny bit of underboob. Tiny bit. Like, like it, 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 whatever. Come on now. And as she said in her own words, feminism is not something to bludgeon other women with. Uh God knows that if we were indicting women for the way they exploit their bodies, there are a bajillion other women that you could list first. A, we don't, and they can use their bodies any way that they want to. And B, that's not the point of what it's about, which is where we come to your next point, that there were a number of people who said, oh, well, isn't it rich that Emma Watson is now being ridiculed 
for showing her body when she ridiculed Beyonce in the same way. So there was a, an article that was in a magazine that was released in 2014. And it was actually, if I remember correctly, it was Wonderland, Wonderland magazine, but it was actually Emma in, who was like a guest editor interviewing Tavi Gevinson for this 2014 article. And I actually wrote about it on the site and said at the time that there were a lot of links to articles that talked about it, but not an actual link to the article itself, which I knew at the time and know now, if you can't find the link to an actual article, there's a reason why uh, nobody was linking to that article. And there's a reason why none of the people who said that she had criticized Beyonce for making something that was for the gaze of a male viewer. And can that really be feminist? Uh, If they weren't linking to it, there's a reason why. So that all went down on, I believe, on on Monday. Yep. On Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? It was Tuesday. On Tuesday, Emma Watson, who endured all of this very sort of calmly and obliquely, just released the article, the actual printed image, the like pages. a scanned image of yeah. the page. Highlighting the Beyonce part. That's right. In but yellow. No, nobody else had this. Yeah. Nobody else had the actual link to the actual physical interview. Everybody was indicting her on something that didn't exist. When you read it, and I have retweeted it, and we will link to it again on the podcast, it becomes obvious that what she said was taken entirely out of context. She says, uh, among other things, I so admire her. On the one hand, she's putting herself in a category of a feminist, this very strong woman, and has this beautiful speech by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie in one of her songs. But then the camera, it felt very male, such a male voyeuristic experience of her. And I wondered if you had thought about that. She asks... Tabby, who then responds at length and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And later on, she goes on to say, uh, she does make it clear that she's performing for him and the fact that she wasn't doing it for a label, she was doing it for herself and the control that she has directing it and putting it out there, I agree, is making her sexuality empowering because it's her choice. Long story short, and you can read more of the quote in this Uh, image that will be linked, she basically is saying the opposite of what people were accusing her of. She is saying that, yes, Beyonce is engaging in a feminist act and backing up her own point, which is feminism is not a bat to beat each other with. So part of the problem here, or the question, I guess, is all the people who rush to indict, are there people who you think want to see somebody like Emma Watson fall? Somebody mess up? Oh, yeah. Why? Do we kind of do that? How do you mean? Let's call, let me call myself out. Yeah, go on. Do I want to see, um, I don't know, like, do I want to see, uh, the prom queen fall? Okay, but let's get real, though. Is, uh, by the prom queen, you mean like a supposed higher than everybody, like, princess who can do no wrong? Is that- Yeah. Like, if we go by backlash, 
there's that inevitable Oscar backlash, right? So the actress, it's always the actress, right? Wins the Oscar and the hateration comes. Hathaway, Lawrence, Witherspoon took some of that, but, you know, whatever. Well, no, but you're struck there. It's like, oh, she deserved it. But isn't the argument everybody deserves it? And isn't the argument nobody is so perfect that they're beyond reproach? Well, there it is. I mean, but it feels like, I mean, I don't know what you're getting at right now in terms of exactly with Emma Watson, but we have seen that pattern. Look, I don't know Emma Watson at all personally. I don't, maybe she has really gross toenails. Um, maybe she's insufferable. I have no idea. Maybe she was a terrible roommate. Maybe she's none of those things. But I feel like, especially with this intense media campaign, in the Vanity Fair article, the writer asks, well, because uh, she's talked about how she's trying to engage in only sustainable fashion on the red carpet. And the writer asks, is this super annoying? Is this really goody two-shoes? At which point, Gloria Steinem, Gloria Steinem mm-hmm. is like, would you say that about a man who was being socially conscious? No, fuck off. Um, and then there's this sort of rush to indict that she's not a real feminist. And I just kind of go, is this just because we're hearing about her all the time? Is this some leftover Hermione link because Hermione was kind of a goody two-shoes? Are we looking for something here to make her imperfect? And is it because it's hard to believe that someone could be so on paper perfect? I don't… She's never had a scandal. She's the UN uh, spokesperson, ambassador. She is uh, very well-spoken, Ivy League educated, Oxford educated. Like, is it our own skepticism? Well, and that's not necessarily perfect, but it is private, right? She's very clear about how she doesn't talk about her love life, how she's not going to pose for photos with people and explains why in a really articulate way that you kind of can't argue about. Um, I want to point out that there were people who did criticize her. Her point being when people post a photo, there's often a, a geopin. Like a tracking system. Yeah, that people can find her. And then, like, two days later, Lin-Manuel Miranda posted the same thing. He posted, like, oh, my God, Paris photo. It's amazing. And somebody was like, you're in Paris? This is amazing. And he said, nope, I left two days ago. 99% of you are awesome, and 1% of you, like, try to track me down like a dog. Mm -hmm. So, no. My point, of course, being that he was met with nothing but love. Yeah. So, she's reasonable, and she keeps the unreasonable parts of herself hidden. Is that sustainable for a celebrity of her level? I don't know. I don't know either. But I do think that there is, I mean, there is something to the fact that Emma Watson has kept so many parts of herself private. I mean, remember, this is someone who's part of the Harry Potter franchise. There's not many bigger franchises than the Harry Potter franchise. And yet, she managed to go to Brown and go to Oxford and actually not really be all that exposed without living life with eight bodyguards. That's what's interesting about her, too. She's extremely wealthy. I mean, the Harry Potter money alone. 
And we don't even know what the investments from that would be, right? But she doesn't move around with that, you know, the whole, you see it all the time with the Justin Biebers and the Britney Spears and the big bodyguards. Like she actually seems like she moves around like a regular person and is able to sort of go underground when she needs to go underground um, and selectively comes out only when she needs to. So there is that big question mark. Hey, Emma Watson, who are you? Who are you when we don't see you? The other part of that is, and this is an ongoing conversation that I don't think we need to settle tonight, but if you are somebody who will never have to worry about money for the rest of your life because you made it all before you were 11 years old uh, with the promise of seven Harry Potter films, and you engage in things like being an advocate for feminism and, you know, having a book club where you hide feminist books on the subway and that kind of thing, is is that the kind of thing that you can even do in secret? Or does it, do the parts of her that we know because she does them in public because she's using her profile to lift things up, if they're the parts of her that we know, is that... Are we supposed to make a judgment or an opinion on somebody who's only putting the best parts of themselves out there? What's more fascinating to me is that she can do that. How so? Like, we are constantly hearing about, oh, I need to like, I need to travel with all these people who protect me and I need to live behind this gate. And like, she actually doesn't. I don't know if any of them do. I heard... And maybe this is growing up in Britain. I heard an anecdote and no idea if this is true, but I heard a story about Daniel Radcliffe that he was reading or something in Central Park and he noticed some girls notice him. Um, Harry Potter fans, they kind of, you know, whispered and giggled and he was aware that they noticed him. And he said to them, you can come and talk if you want. I'm kind of bored of my book. And they did. And it was all fine and nobody dated anybody and it's not the beginning of any sort of story. But maybe walking around unmolested that way and not assuming that everybody wants a piece of you all the time allows you a little bit more freedom. Well, I mean, we've had this talk before, and there is something to the British versus American version of this. Absolutely. There's also something to the New York versus L.A. version of this. Yeah. And specifically related to child stars. Oh, yeah. You know, like the British ones… And this uh, may be a controversial thing to say, um, with the exception of Millie Bobby Brown, to be continued, dot, 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 right? But… She may be British in name only at this point. Um, But the British ones seem to fare better, in general, than the American ones. Agreed. And I think that has a lot to do with being able to tuck away from it when you want to. And the reasons why are best explored when show your work goes on location to Britain at a time to be announced. Oh but I assume God. we're doing that. Can I, can I just, our, I'm trying to look at our accountant, Yasik, <laughs> see if we have that in the budget. <laughs> can we podcast please from the uh, Claridge's? That, the Claridge's would be great. I Obviously. <laughs> I think we need to do more research on this topic and I think we should take the show there for some uh, in-depth investigative reporting. <laughs> So the other day, you texted me because you had just read the Melina Matsuka's profile in The New Yorker, and I had just read it too, which was 
and we decided we had to talk about her. Yeah. I mean, it's funny coming from discussion of Emma Watson and Beyonce and so forth because this is one of those people who I didn't know she existed. Did you know she existed? I kind of knew, but I didn't know her name. Well, I did, um, admittedly, because of Formation. Right. So, of course, Melina Matsukas directed Formation. I read everything I could on Formation when Formation came out, so I knew the name, but was pleasantly surprised when the name came up a few months later upon the release of Insecure, that's Issa Rae's show, because... Uh, Melina and Issa worked on Insecure together. And I believe Melina directed most of the episodes of season one of Insecure and certainly the pilot. Um, So I actually read a co-interview with Issa and Melina at the time of the release of Insecure. I believe I wrote about it too on Laney Gossip and I will link to that um, in, in the post for this. But, but that's when I, in 2016, is when I met Melina. But I suspect, Duanna, that what you're getting at is that's just when most people like us found out about her. But within the world of black artists, this has been someone who has been working and being very successful at her work for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. That is something that's very clear, that this is just an introduction to sort of, as you say, sort of the greater public. Um, But also, shout out to The New Yorker for profiling somebody who is not a celebrity, but somebody who does very interesting things in and among people that we care about. I think it's always great when we have people behind the scenes being highlighted, especially women. especially women who are doing things that are incredibly rare and difficult to get at, like directing. Uh, And the story of how she gets there is predictably unpredictable in that, you know, there's no direct path to becoming a music video for Beyonce. You do some stuff and you try some things and you work for Uh, artists that you might know less about and you do some things that are less well-regarded, sometimes it's not that easy to get to a place where, where this is. And really, that was what spoke to me about this article. It was not the article of somebody. It says she was born in 1981. So depending on who you are and how you're listening, she is of your generation But it's not the story of somebody who is like, I'm only going to direct really important and really feminist and, you know, groundbreaking social videos. You do what you got to do to get by sometimes. Yes? Yep. And then you also get to direct videos for Beyonce and Whitney Houston and Jennifer Lopez, I think, right? That's what it says? Um, Yeah, I'm looking at right now. Yep. Yep made videos for such singers as Whitney Houston and Jennifer Lopez. And Lady, Lady Gaga. Gaga. Oh, and uh, Robin Thicke. And Robin Thicke. Thicke. There you go. There's your example. You do have to get do whatever you need to get by. <laughs> but, I want, but I really want that to be clear. You know, uh, other names that come up in here are Snoop Dogg and... Rihanna. Ludic- and Ludacris. And, you know, uh, I really think this is interesting because she talks about here... Uh, you know, Snoop, uh, she says, you walk into that kind of situation and you're like, quote, he's a pimp. 
I don't know how he's going to react to a female director, unquote. She envisioned a video that was radically at odds with Snoop's usual work, an early 80s throwback in which he would dress up in outrageous suits and wigs and perform the guitar. <laughs> and she won him over. And a moment later, it says, by mid-shoot, I had Snoop shirtless and dancing. Uh, I quote, I remember being like, well, we want to attach this weave to your beard. And he was like, sure, glue it on, she said. I just think it's really interesting to talk about when we talk about people and especially women who are successful in these incredibly rarefied fields, it can be really easy to think, well, of course that person's successful. They have important things to say. Mm -hmm. Of course Ava DuVernay is successful because she is an important social artist. Or of course Shonda Rhimes is important because she is elevating actresses and women of color to all these important places. And I want to say yes and. Everybody who has achieved any kind of success in their work is also doing stuff that they do just because. Sometimes they're doing the important stuff and the just because stuff at the same time. Sometimes learning how to frame a shot on a video that objectifies women and has no redeeming value is the video that teaches you how to shoot formation. Um, And that's what I really found most exciting about this article was the idea that you can get there by any means you want to, really. I'm not trying to be like, who was it recently that we laughed at? It was Beyonce when she was like, I can be this, anybody can be this. Yes, at her show. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to say anybody can be anything, but I am trying to say that there's no path that is unnoble or that is a a dirty way to get to the kind of art that you want to make or the kind of thing that you want to say. I love that. And I totally agree with you that like in this article, which was essentially a little bit of an IMDb, right? Like a listing of all her work and you can see the trajectory. Yes. Um, And also not just trajectory, because I feel like trajectory implies that you can't go quote unquote backwards. That once you move forwards, you can't go back and do like the fun, meaningless video that now just because you can do formation, it doesn't mean you can't go back and make like a Nelly video with girls. Not that she shot a Nelly video. I don't think Nelly shows up here. But what I'm saying is that she couldn't have fun shooting a video with girls in stilettos uh, batting at (laughs) playing baseball, right? I'm, I'm saying that, you know, it's really interesting to see that this article showed the variety in her work. And yet, on top of this IMDb, this sort of New Yorker profile is, it's also the reason why I loved it so much, and I think that I can speak for both of us, is when people talk about work, it's pornographic for us. 100%. (laughs) And so she actually walks us through the process of how she storyboards her videos. Um, you know, she talks about her meeting with Beyonce, the things that Beyonce gave her to work with, or a, a very general picture of what Beyonce wanted to hit in the formation video. Right. She talks about then going home and the research that she did. She walks us through all the materials that she read through. She talks to us about how 
Then she decided to write up a treatment and that she sent it to Beyonce and that Beyonce responded in just a few hours and said she loved it. Then she talked about the shooting process and what she had to go through. What I loved most maybe, I think, is when she talked about her experience of being at work and sometimes working with camera operators or cinematographers who won't shoot what she wants to shoot. She's the director and there is a camera operator who's trying to tell her, no, you can't light it that way. It's not going to look good that way. And she's like, oh, okay, I see what you mean. And in this article, she says, just give me the camera, I'll do it. Uh, I will do it. Oh, hey, you, you're getting paid to do the shooting, but you won't do the shooting? Give me the fucking camera. Let me do your job for you. And let's really call that out. She's saying they won't do it because whether they woman. say it or not. Yeah. Because she's a woman and they don't think she knows where to put the camera, what will look good, which is something, by the way, that I have heard from dozens upon dozens of female directors and writers that I know personally, that I read about, that there is surprise at best and scorn or worse at worst that they will not know what they're doing. There is, sexism is alive and well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, especially in the entertainment business. Uh, there's the idea that the women really will not know what they're doing. And they prove those naysayers wrong constantly. And I just, I agree with you. And what you, you're saying here is that like, that's part of what they're used to. That part of going to work for these women, and let's face it, they're still unicorns, right? It's not like there are a lot of Melinas. There's not like a lot of Avas or Shondas. So for these women, what they do and what they have to deal with, grabbing the camera from a camera operator who won't shoot because he doesn't think you're right about the light, that is a normal day at work for them. It means that their muscles have been conditioned to resistance and that those muscles have been trained to overcome that resistance and be like, Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just do it. And there's something else in this article that is really, really uh, evocative of that. Uh, and that is that as good as this article is, it's not a, um, you know, it's not an unflinching blowjob. Uh, it talks about some criticisms. It talks maybe about some accusations of being derivative. It talks about some choices that she made that were... Uh, maybe not the best. And that's okay. She moves on. I think a difference that can happen between men and women that we've talked about on this podcast before is the idea that if a woman makes a mistake, if she makes something that's not a hit, if there's something that is not as well received, that it can cripple her. Whereas a man rolls on and keeps going. And I think that one of the things that's really exciting in this article is reading about the things that were not hits and how she kept going and how she kind of goes, you know what? Yep. Don't really respond to that. Don't think that was the best choice. Uh, I'm going to keep going and mm -hmm. not let those failures define her. And I think it's so interesting to talk about the idea that A, failure is part of success and B, it can't be the only story. No. But when we're talking about stories, 
the title of this piece in The New Yorker is The Provocator Behind Beyonce, Rihanna, and Issa Rae, How the Director Melina Matsukas Helps Female Artists Reinvent Themselves. And what I'm, what I'm really excited about here, too, is that, you know, last year I wrote a lot about film criticism. And specifically, Meryl Streep called this out, how films made about women or for women were, for the most part, negatively reviewed by male critics because male critics have been conditioned to see and experience through a very narrow lens of maleness and how that affected the performance of female-driven projects. That's right. Ghostbusters is one example, and we have so many. And we wrote extensively about that last year. And the relationship between that issue and Melina Matsukas here is that I find it very, like, I find it so, I don't know what the word is. I feel like fist pumpy is like the only thing I can talk about. How right now you have directors like Melina, and then there's the Ava, who can take a woman's story and give it that very specific treatment and interpretation. Um so that it can be told in a way that is universal but also singular. And how that has been what has been missing from the artistic landscape, being able to see that story from that particular lens and then in turn helping the women, the artists that she's shooting, reinvent themselves as this artist says or as this article says. I find that really exciting. I don't think that I described it very well just now, but you know what I mean? I know what you mean, and I would agree with you and also counter that it's not that there haven't been women before who can do this, who can find those stories and find the ways to tell them. It's that there are, in large part, incredibly powerful artists who are able to choose those women to tell the stories for them that part of the reason we're seeing the rise of directors like this is because incredibly powerful artists like Beyonce, like Rihanna, like Issa Rae have the opportunity to make the choice yes. to engage these people yes. instead of the people that we've heard from over and over and over again. 100. And I, I love that you mentioned this because you know, one of the, the things that is unsung about Beyonce and Rihanna too is that Beyonce, and I've said it before in this podcast, is an advocate for the black creative class. Yes. So she wanted Melina to direct her video. The photographer that she used to do the pregnancy package, the, you know, that yes. we yes. celebrated extensively a few weeks ago, um, is a black artist. I wrote recently about Rihanna's chef her personal chef, yeah. a black woman from the islands, mm-hmm. um, that these black women, these black artists are giving opportunities, using their power, showing their work by uplifting the work of other marginalized or otherwise marginalized artists. But they don't get credit for it. No. Beyonce and Rihanna do not get credit for that. And look, I will say two things. On the one hand, no, you're right, they don't get credit for it. On the other hand, they're not doing it because they, they want, want the to credit. lift up, yeah. well, because they want the credit or because they want to lift up other 
black women, they're doing it because these are the people who can tell the stories they want to tell. Mm -hmm. This is why we talk about these things. This is why I have such an issue with uh, the movie Bad Moms and why we will talk in future weeks about the lens of men through which we see so much entertainment. But there are stories that are best and most importantly told by other black women. And this is the power of Beyonce, of Rihanna, that they're able to make that happen in as full and rich a way as those stories deserve. Well, you mentioned Bad Moms. And I feel like every year or every summer, right, season, we have that one raunchy lady movie, for better, for worse. You know, that Bridesmaids, The Heat, Bad Moms. I was just thinking that I have on my PVR but have not watched uh, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, which despite being a movie that has men in the title, is about raunchy women. There you go. The one I think that many people are looking forward to this coming summer is um, Rough Night. Right. That is what? Scarlett Johansson, Kate McKinnon, Alana Glazer, Jillian Bell. Who am I missing? Zoe Kravitz. Right. A lot of good names. So the premise of that movie, it's a stag night for girls. They go away. Uh, The stripper comes over. The stripper dies. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great premise. Anyway, so… Scarlett Johansson, I mean, is going to front that kind of movie—a sisterhood, solidarity, you know, uh, hangover, female hangover, for lack of a better way of describing it. I'm raunch, sorry. Uh, yeah. You know, speaking of censored words, will the word "clit" come up in that movie? Probably. I'm going <laughs> to say. Who's going to say it? Jillian Bell. Oh, Atlanta Glazer. Obviously. <laughs> Atlanta Glazer. Okay. Obviously. <laughs> um. So I like this move for Scarlett. I think that, to me, I haven't seen Scarlett Johansson in a lot of films where she's with other women. The one that pops up uh, immediately would be the Boleyn girl, oh, yeah, sister, yeah, but, oh, whatever. <laughs> Natalie Portman, right? Right. But when you think of Scarlett Johansson, do you think of her starring with women? No, not at all. And in fact… No, I don't at all. And I agree that this will be another side of her because it's something we don't see. And because when we were talking about lining up the podcast tonight, you said, well, she's, you know, the biggest female box office star. And I think I groaned uh, because she has a tendency to come off as not that, as a little bit bland, as not a hugely compelling character. To you. Uh, Yeah, to me. But like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's a really bang out iconic role that she has played after Lost in Translation? I mean, I love her as Black Widow. Yeah, Sorry. But, sure, but that's not nobody looks at her and thinks of Black Widow or looks at the Avengers and is like Scarlett Johansson is the standout in that movie. Okay, like but I mean, she didn't disappear. Look, I'm not mad at it, but I'm saying for somebody who is the biggest box office star, she's not, there's not a lot that's iconic. You mentioned Reese Witherspoon earlier. Reese Witherspoon, June Carter Cash, done, easy. 
it's like Jeopardy. You can do it immediately. Angelina Jolie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Lara Croft. This is done. There is no iconic Scarlett Johansson role as an adult. Lost in translation, even Ghost World for a lot of people. Okay, well, let's play this game. So oh, let's go. just go through her IMDb then, right? Oh. So you're saying, you're saying Lost in Translation. So yep. that is the big one. Okay, so after Lost in Translation, yep. I will say you're correct with Girl with a Pearl Earring. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Um, Everybody knows the poster. Nobody cared about okay, the Okay, and then movie. there are some that like are not worth mentioning because most well, of people listening won't know. Let's mention them to back me up. Okay, yeah. fine. The Perfect Score. Nobody cares. A love Song for Bobby Long. Nobody cares. A Good Woman. Huh? <laughs> in Good Company. Yeah. Oh, but you reminded me of um, In Good Company. Is that uh, Topher Grace? Um, in Good Company Yeah, that's Topher is, Grace yes. and Dennis Quaid and those two yes. starred in that movie. Nobody cared. Okay, and then after that is Match Point. Okay, now we get into the Woody Allen phase. Yeah, sure. Um, I liked Match Point. I liked it too, but like… The Island was forgettable. Whatever. Scoop. Nobody uh, cared. Black Dahlia, nobody cared. The Prestige. Okay, but I want to pause you. How many movies oh, wait, have we just said I've nobody cared? I've named a lot, but I've, I've only 12? stopped. I've only stopped. Like that was only… We're only at 2006. We're only at 10 years ago, Duanna. So let me just catch up. Oh, but then she starred in Justin Timberlake's what… What goes around comes around video. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, the Nanny Diaries, nobody cared. Then the other Berlin girl, but we do remember that. You guys, um, I'm making the speed yeah. it up motion. Okay, but here we come to Vicky Cristina Barcelona. So you remember, I, I will say this to your point. What I remember from Vicky Cristina is not ScarJo, but Penelope Cruz. Yes, huge. Who, and she won, I, she won the Oscar for Vicky Cristina. I believe so, she? and Javier Bardem. That's what you remember about that movie. That's right. Okay, so then we go into, now we've come to like the Black Widow phase. Um, I will say that I quite liked her and you we only heard her voice in her. You know the Joaquin Venice movie? You guys. Come on. Yeah, but she's a big movie star and all you saw was her voice. Look, Did I you like- see Lucy? Did you see Lucy? No, I, uh, did I see Lucy? No, I didn't. I saw her with you, I believe. No, maybe not. Um, but yeah, I liked her in her, but it was just her voice. Keep going, please. Some people would argue with your just in front of her voice, but I, yeah. All right. The, um, I've skipped a couple. Sorry. But <laughs> after Lucy, there was uh, Hail Caesar, which is the Coen brothers. Um, voice, Jungle Book. And then some more Avengers. And then, of course, Ghost in the Shell is coming out in a few weeks. Okay, you're fine. You're right. This is… Excuse me. Acknowledge what I said. Because I've never heard you say you're right to me. I say you're right a lot. But I will… Not in public. (laughs) (laughs) I will commemorate this moment. But can we just talk about the absurdity of this? This is… Didn't you say to me… Arguably the biggest female box office star. I'm not saying arguably. Like, that is, like, the statistic. That but apparently has- her gross, like, the fucking numbers that she brings in. Okay. Whose side are you on, Yasik? <laughs> okay. Yasik hap Fine. Yasik happens… Yasik is trying to insert his voice into this podcast again. Um, but I think he was trying to gesture to the fact that she had like a nice figure, but he made a tall motion, which is not how he's, I measure been, like, like he's saying he's, she's been in a hundred movies. So I think that's what he's saying accounts for her box office gross. No, lots of people have been in a hundred movies and have made that much money. But can we just say though, honestly, 
I didn't expect it to be quite this bad. There is no iconic role associated with this iconic actress. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that this was not our intended conversation about Scarlett Johansson, but this is why I love this podcast, but that this is where we've come to with Scarlett Johansson. We are debating whether or not Scarlett Johansson deserves the hype. That's right. And, you know, I am one of those people, and we can talk about this in more depth, but I am a fan of Woody Allen movies. And I'm one of those people who is a fan of Woody Allen movies while not being a fan of Woody Allen. Uh, can those You two- like that Moonlight movie? The fucking Colin Firth, M.O. Stone movie? Dancing magic in the moon, whatever. I mean, I, look, I, I, look, I, I, they're a sliding scale of their own, but I can quote you lines from Everyone Says I Love You, uh, okay. I really yeah. enjoyed that uh, Owen Wilson movie where Rachel McAdams is a big bitch. That uh, I Midnight remember. in Paris. Yep. Yeah. Um, I like that movie too. I like the the framework that they are, generally speaking. Uh, I like the whimsy of the storytelling. I was just going to say whimsy. When Scarlett Johansson was doing a series of Woody Allen movies, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that being where she becomes a thing. But in fact, it wasn't. In fact, it didn't do anything for her. In fact, I'm still waiting for Scarlett Johansson, age 30-something, to have a career-defining role. And it blows my mind. Maybe it'll be rough night. Maybe. Let's see. Although an ensemble comedy is not really what people wish for when they're looking for, you know, an iconic role for their lead actress. 1984, which makes her, November 1984, which makes her what? 32. And counting, depending on when her birthday is. So what Scarlett Johansson is also going through right now is a divorce that looks pretty acrimonious. Yeah. So she's coming up on two big releases, which is Ghost in the Shell, cultural appropriation. You know, that's not the point of our conversation today. And also Rough Night, which is the more interesting project I think that she's going to be releasing in the summer, the raunchy girl, female comedy. But right now it is a very, well, it's looking like an ugly divorce. She and uh, Romaine Doriak are splitting up. They have one child. And this past week there was, you know, shots fired from lawyer to lawyer. She files for divorce in New York She files for primary custody or residential custody. He's disputing it. Apparently, he wants to move the child to France. And his lawyer has gone quite... Well, his lawyer has been speaking to lots of outlets, basically saying, she travels so much, the child will have no stability. Uh, He just wants to... He is the primary caregiver. He is going to be... Um, able to set the schedule for the child, blah, blah, blah. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this with you is because we are coming up on issues of childcare and parenting and celebrity. Yeah. And And look, the parenting issue is a big issue beyond celebrity. I mean, that's literally what Facebook has become, hasn't it? Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure where that's going, but we'll get there. Let's first and foremost point this out. I um I know some lawyers. I have 
dealt with lawyers probably on the low side of anybody who's at my life and point, but I've dealt with them somewhat. Lawyers don't do jack unless you tell them to in so many words and pay them for it. Let us not pretend that this is a lawyer going rogue. When his lawyer gave a lengthy interview saying that she was too busy to be a good parent in the press, that That was the implication. Like, I mean, I don't think that those were the exact words, just to be clear. I'm paraphrasing. Don't sue us. That's exactly what he said. Yeah. Um, That is at the behest of the lawyer's client, is my point. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm trying to get at here. That is what Scarlett's soon-to-be ex-husband wanted him to say and or imply. So underneath this is the working mom, the working movie star, even though she may be overhyped movie star, but the working mom who has a busy schedule and in this divorce proceeding, that is it being held against her? Oh, it sure is. So let's get super real here. If you are a celebrity, and I don't know what her most recent box office quote is. What does she make? $15 million a picture? Whatever. Sure. Yeah. Let's be super simplistic about it and say if Scarlett Johansson makes $15 million a picture, half of it goes to taxes and agent fees and whatever else. She's still doing fine. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson has lots of money. If you are a box office star who has this kind of money or even a fraction thereof, is your schedule not at all like a traditional nine-to-five parents? Yes, absolutely. You have to be at parties, and that's work. You have to be at all the press launches in all the countries, and that's work. Do you have, A, the money, and B, the clout to keep your child with you at all times? Yes, absolutely you do. No question. All this to say the idea that she is too busy to be a good parent, the idea that her schedule is so unpredictable that the child will not be able to be in a stable place or home, can we just call this bullshit for what it is? Because we know it is. And lest I go off on too giant a rant, the next thing that we're about to say is, is this sexist? It's incredibly sexist. When is the last time you heard a man, any man, being called out for being too busy to be a good father? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I will accept that silence. I'm trying to think of an example. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you an example, in fact, Lily Collins wrote an article in the press recently uh, forgiving her father, Phil Collins, for not being around when she was a child, which is a weird thing to do and is another conversation. But that's some 20-some-odd years after the fact. And that is, by 
all means the exception that proves the rule. Uh, and I'm, I have no idea about Phil Collins' parenting, but we don't hear it. We don't hear about the father and what the father does and where he is and whether he is or is not showing up with enough regularity and stability. But, but let me, let me like round out so that anybody who wants to chime in, because there might be some people who are going to chime in. This is not my opinion, but I want to get those chime ins in. What about if there's somebody who says, okay, but that dad isn't asking for primary custody. Okay, but what do we know about Roman's schedule? He is asking for primary custody, first of all. Second of all, yeah, I think a lot of those dads do have primary custody or shared custody. I think the other elephant in the room here often is, oh, but really they'll be raised by nannies, to which I say, yeah, and? (laughs) Who do you know? that has not had some childcare? Who do you know who has not employed a babysitter now and then? I say if you know somebody who is not employing a babysitter, is it because they themselves are engaged in the full-time work that is raising children? In today's society, we believe that women and men should do both both have a job and be able to raise children, which means there is an opportunity for people whose primary expertise is childcare to participate in the lives of these children. Okay, so the chime in from here is going to be in a regular case involving civilians. Let's say, and I'm going to give the most generic example, you have a CEO dad with a uh, mom who is not keeping a CEO schedule. And if they divorce, and more often than not, the children's primary residence is going to be with the mom. So in this case, the chime-in person is going to say, hey, that's Romaine Doriak, and Scarlett Johansson is the CEO. You're saying because he has a more predictable schedule. Correct. First of all, I have not seen any proof of this. And second... I would argue that that in itself is quite antiquated. Uh, There's a real interesting thing right now, which is that in some divorces, the parents are now choosing to leave the house to the children. And the parents themselves, rather than having the kids shuffle across town shared custody styles, the parents rotate in and out of the house and sometimes even share a bachelor pad type place where they stay when they're not with the kids. Uh, The idea that one parent should have primary custody is based in logistics and not necessarily in what's best for the child. Or the idea that one parent should have primary custody is not necessarily based in the idea that the other parent shouldn't be there or shouldn't have primary custody. I think in this case, one of the things we're talking about is that this is an international family. Right where choosing one parent or the other to have primary custody means choosing one country or another. And so I wonder if we are, it's hard to talk about this, isn't it? Because one of the things that we're talking about is what we think about childcare and parenting and what's important and what's not. And so much of that discussion can be tied up in money and expense 
and how expensive childcare is. And it can be hard to have this conversation when money is not a part of it. When we're not talking about, oh, well, you know, it takes a lot of money to keep two kids in daycare. And so that's why everybody's working that hard. It can be really hard, I think, for the average pundit, who's not us, to generate reasons why somebody who has an erratic schedule and all the money in the world shouldn't want what's, and I quote, best for their child, then it becomes qualitative. Who says what's best for Scarlett Johansson's daughter isn't to see her mother busting her ass every day and working at it? And also, who's to say that's not sometimes a more beneficial schedule? An average parent, as you were talking about, might work nine to five. Say Scarlett Johansson has a week of night shoots. You know what she can do? Get up and spend the whole day with her children. And let's be honest, on a film set, half the time, three quarters of the time is setting up the fucking shot, and then you're in the trailer, and then you come out and you do your lines for what? What, Duanna? Like an hour? 45 minutes? Well, I mean, sure, yeah. And then they move on to the next setup. Yes, there's a lot of downtime. And then you go back to your trailer. That's right. And then they set up the shot for the next two hours. Yeah, and you say trailer, but, you know, in many, many, many cases, Scarlett Johansson would have no problem having an on-set nursery set up for her daughter anywhere she is, or an on-set school, or having her daughter tutored with any children who are also being tutored in the course of the production, having her enrolled in a school that is nearby the production. This is part of the privilege of this part of lifestyle is actually she probably has more time with her child, not less. But I mean, this whole issue of motherhood and when and how it's managed, you know, there was an article that we read together about, you know, two weeks ago in The Cut. Um, Scarlett is what? Is it, you tell me, by today's standards, is she a young mother? She's 32, you said she was, right? She's 32 now. The child what, is what, two years old? Two years old, I think. Sure. So, um, you know, it really depends on where we're talking about. I'm always surprised at what is or isn't a young mother, depending on where you are. Right. Um, certainly in lots of cities, many people are having their first child at 35 or above. Um, it's not unusual to hear of people having a child or even a first child at 40. In lots of other parts of the country, of the world, people have their first children when they're 24, 25, etc. Um, but especially for a generation who's just coming up behind you and I, if you're not an extremely wealthy person, it can be really difficult to be uh, ready to take on things like parenting when there are no jobs and housing markets are out of control and all the rest of it. So I wonder if that's changing. Well, I mean, this article asks the question, it was written by E.J. Dixon um, in the cut, and the title of the article is, Why Did Everyone Act Like I Was Crazy When I Decided to Have a Baby in My 20s? So the celebrity connection here, if y'all need it, is that, you know, she cites the examples of what? Is it Adele? She cited Adele and Hilary Duff. She literally has a quote where she says something to the effect of, well, Adele and Hilary Duff had their babies young, so I can do it too. Which was this amazing thing to me because I thought, yeah, sure they did, but they have all kinds of resources that assumedly 
this article writer doesn't. And then I thought, what? but why does that make a difference? Uh, you know, one of the reasons that people wait until they're older, the idea is, is because it takes longer than it did in our parents' generation to get stable enough to want to have a child. Uh, and so it's a really interesting prospect. Our celebrities who have children at whatever age giving a false sense of simplicity to being a parent. Well, and Adele, Adele is now what, 28 years old? I we just talked about this the other day. 28. 28 now, and you're right ish for 29 because her birthday's in May. People, she said right ish. <laughs> Well, right. Well, right now, today, she's 27, and in uh, what two months she's going to be 28. Her baby or her son is what three, four. So let's say she had her baby at 24, Five, 24, 25. So I, to me, to Lainey, that is young. Like. Fuck, when I remember who I was at 24, 25 years old, I hadn't even met Yasek. Like, I was a fucking, I was a mess. But anyway, so Adele had her baby. Hillary Duff was even younger. I feel like Hillary Duff was what, like 22 when she had her baby, something like that. Maybe when she had her first child, she was around 23. Sure, I would uh, agree with that. And certainly I know Reese Witherspoon was 23 when she had Ava, which was an impossible 17 years ago, you guys. Ava Philippi, the sort of image of young love, is 17 years 17. of age. 17. So are they presenting a false sense of what's achievable? Up to and including, by the way, getting your pre-baby body back. Is that a hell of a lot easier for your average 24-year-old celebrity Fuck mom? yes. Than the 41-year-old who's like, I finally have time to have the child I've wanted all my life? So do you think that this is an issue? Like, are women actually looking at the Adele's and Hillary Duff's and the Reese Witherspoon at like 22 and being like, I can have a baby? I mean, I think it's like anything else where celebrities are concerned. It's aspirational. Do I think that it is seen as achievable? Not necessarily, but I think that it's something that you tend to look at and think you should be able to achieve. It would be nice if you could, that there's a standard that you're not necessarily meeting. For some people, there's a hell of a lot of people, myself well included, who had no interest in having a child well before um, <clears throat> the 30s were established. <laughs> Because there was a lot of other stuff to do and a lot of other fun to be had. Uh, so I don't think it's creating a trend that you can't back away from. I do think it's an interesting example of where Hollywood is not reflective of reality and where, if we're really getting down to it, having a baby when you are Adele or Reese Witherspoon or Scarlett Johansson does not affect your work your income, your future work and income, the way it does if you are somebody who works in the real world. Well, I mean, to say nothing of where you work in the real world, because we're based in Canada where the law is that maternity leave is a year. If, yes. And 
in many parts of Europe, it's a year, sometimes even more. Sometimes 18 months, yeah. And then in America, though, what is it, six weeks? Uh, it depends on the size of your employer, uh, but six weeks is quite standard. Uh, often six for a vaginal birth and eight for a C-section. Oh, God. I believe this is the first time we've said vaginal on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. Look, I've never done it, and I will not do it, be doing it, but six weeks? Look, I can't sit here and say, oh, that's impossible, because millions of women do it. Have done it and are doing it, and I applaud you, but I just… And I want to be clear for Canadian listeners, because um, we can sometimes get some misinformation. That six weeks is not because, oh, you work at… Uh, you know, in a in a less sort of high-profile job or in a less white-collar job, pardon the term. That can be across the board in very high-profile areas, no matter how much you're being paid. Uh, remember Marissa Mayer uh, of Yahoo famously two weeks. taking two weeks? Yeah. Uh, and by contrast, I think Mark Zuckerberg took four months uh, at Facebook, and that was absolutely shocking at the time. Um, I mean, we're all over the place here for sure, but I do want to say that, yeah, I think it's interesting that when, that arguably a celebrity who chooses motherhood and the time she chooses motherhood, uh, has almost none of the constraints of the real world. And yet the things she chooses to do as a mother, the jobs she chooses to take, even if they're going to provide her child with every advantage known to men, are still able to be criticized and put under a microscope and scrutinized. Uh, And basically, you can be Scarlett Johansson and be the most beautiful woman in the world or the sexiest or the biggest box office draw, and somebody's still going to tell you you're a bad mother. So that's where we are. So... We've really never, you and I, talked about Kristen Stewart. I talk about Kristen Stewart with Sarah. I talk about her with Emily. I mean, I would argue we've talked about her a lot. Maybe not recently, because I had no time for Kristen Stewart. Yeah. For the longest time. Mm -hmm. I could care less, and I could care less about Twilight, and I um, am going to live to regret what I'm about to say, but I've still never seen any of those movies, and I feel fine about it. I think that's okay. Yasik has never seen E.T. I think that's a bigger problem. That's a much bigger problem, <laughs> but also, how about Yasik in this scenario? <laughs> uh, but I remember when I started to care about Kristen Stewart, and it was uh, when she was caught cheating with uh, her director on uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. Yeah. Um, and there were those pictures of them making out, um, and... I remember thinking that everybody was waiting to indict her much the way I feel like people are waiting to indict Emma Watson, waiting for there to be a problem. Uh, And I wrote an article that I'm still pretty proud about on Lainey Gossip uh, about how I thought she was, and I quote, a scripted slut, tongue firmly in cheek. Yep. And then I started to care more. Mm -hmm. So that's about the, maybe the last time we talked about her. Well, the reason I'm bringing her up right now is because Personal Shopper just came out or the promotion for it and outlet upon outlet, ha, like, I mean, 
there's a piece in Vulture, there's a piece in The Ringer, there's a piece in The Hollywood Reporter. I think there's more about how Kristen Stewart is essentially the finest actress or one of the finest actresses of her generation, how she's, uh, we need to give her more credit. Now, granted, I will say that Lainey Gossip has done extensive coverage on Kristen Stewart over the years and that, I don't know, like there may be Kristen Stewart diehard fans who um, just want us to say nice starry feathers, sparkly things about her. We have been critical at times, but I don't know that we've underestimated her talent. That said, the reason why I want to talk about it with you in particular is because I want to talk to you about Kristen Stewart's career path. We last week talked about Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Donnie Darko to Prince of Persia to Nightcrawler and End of Watch to Broadway and Sunday in the Park with George. Not Sundays, which you corrected me about, but Sunday in the Park with George. And so Kristen Stewart um, was Panic Room. Yeah. And then, um, oh my God, what was that movie I hated so much directed by Sean Penn about the true story of the guy who goes to Alaska and dies on the bus? Um, in the, into the wild. Right. Went into the wild. Um, and then pivots from there to Twilight. And then after Twilight has kind of scaled back the scope of her pictures. Mm-hmm. And has done some really interesting work. I've always enjoyed Kristen Stewart. But it's, I want to talk about Kristen Stewart showing her work. I actually will say that the first Kristen Stewart role that I saw, which was um, really kind of startling in how good it was, was the movie Speak, which is uh, from 2004 and is based on the novel by Laurie Halls Anderson. Pre-Twilight. Pre-Twilight. And in fact, that's uh, an interesting thing. Kristen Stewart was working long before pre-Twilight. Kristen Stewart was a child actor. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, was a child actor uh, in films with friends of ours, which is a really funny thing to think about now. Uh, But she's been working for a long, long, long time. And if we want to talk about people who make the transition from being a child to an adult actor, Kristen Stewart has done that really relatively painlessly. Uh, She has, I think it's three movies now with Jesse Eisenberg, uh, at which I can roll my eyes because he's (laughs) not my favorite. Nope. Nope. Not a fan. But you know how we were talking earlier about Scarlett Johansson having no iconic roles? Mm -hmm. Kristen Stewart has many iconic roles. Like, she's Twilight if you care about Twilight. But she's also Joan Jett, indelibly Joan Jett if you remember The Runaways. And I'll be honest, sometimes I think more about the press stills from that movie than I do about the actual movie. But she's still iconic in that way. She was in Snow White and the Huntsman for all that that was. For me, she was the most important part of the otherwise good but whatever movie uh, Still Alice for which, of course, Julianne Moore won the Oscar. I didn't like that movie. I didn't think it was a great movie. However, you're right. She was great. She was great. And And Julianne was great. It was a performance movie, but I thought that the story was missing. Yeah, there was no story. Yeah. 
There was no story. It's like a woman and her wife sometimes go to their cottage. That was the story of the movie. I'm being uh, a bit facetious about the story of, uh, you know, Lydia who comes to terms with her Alzheimer's over time, but come on. Um, Kristen Stewart was a standout in that movie. Yes? I I agree. Like, I think that to me what was most interesting was when Kristen Stewart and Julianne Moore were together. In that restaurant. Remember that scene? Yeah. As opposed to like Alec Baldwin was in it, right? Yeah, he was great. Like I was like, like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's interesting to me that you can name more Kristen Stewart movies than you can name Scarlett Johansson movies. Uh, Look, I'll be honest. I was cheating a little in that I had her IMDb up in front of me, but they also come to mind much easier. I can picture those movies. I can see who she was in those movies. So Kristen Stewart, do people, do we underrate Kristen Stewart? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe rather than underrate, we take Kristen Stewart for granted, right? It's been however many years since she did Panic Room and she reliably gives excellent performances. And because she's so not doing it for the fame, because she's so not about what she wears on the red carpet or, uh, you know, who she's dating and how that plays into her role as a celebrity. Okay, she's kind of about who she's dating. Not really, though. Like, I mean, come on. Like, we're talking about how she maybe, or how she's with Stella Maxwell now, yeah. and then, like, five minutes ago, she was with St. Vincent, and then five minutes before that, she was with her, like, former or whatever girlfriend, Alicia Cargyle, with a okay, stopover. Okay, no, 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 but like, that's, you're talking about being in your 20s and dating. That's not the same thing as, like, strategic showman's hookups oh, that you okay. can print in People Got magazine. It. Yeah, she's not like using her romantic life to get roles. That's right. I'm yeah. I, or to build her bigger celebrity profile. Okay? Nobody knows who she's dating except you, including half the directors who she's working with. So, all this to say, I don't know if I think that we don't know what a great actress she is. Or that since all she does is act, if we just don't give her enough credit for being utterly and completely reliable, you know, she's a leading woman who almost doesn't act like a leading woman. And I'm trying to think of a comparison of somebody who fits that same description, maybe, and go with me here for a minute, maybe she's a bit of a Hillary Swank in the sense- Oh my God! No, what? What? <laughs> Hillary Swank is not Hillary Swank because of the recipes that she makes that we print in People magazine. I know, but like, I just, my whole thing with Hillary Swank is that Hillary Swank is two Oscars. So? Oh, what? And Annette Benning has zero. I don't understand. Oh, okay. I Can just, I just talk I'm... about how, um, we, we rarely talk about your day jobs on this show. But uh, the Twitter for one of your day jobs pointed out that Suicide Squad has one Oscar and Annette Benning has zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be eTalk. That's right. At eTalkCTV. Please follow. Um, yeah. Anyway, no. I will. I reject the comparison between Hillary Swank and Kristen Stewart. Why? What is that the, in there? to you? I'm going to write about that. I'm going to tell people. I don't understand. People. What offended you? I'm serious. Ah. No. Okay, 
Kristen Stewart is an actress and not a movie star. Agree? Disagree? Disagree. What's the difference between, oh, here we're going to fight. What is the difference between Emma Watson and Kristen Stewart? How old are they? Let me, let's just check. Hang on. Emma Watson's 26. Kristen Stewart, I don't know off the top of my head. Also, I think 26. Okay. Here. Hang on. Yasik's going to yell at me about my mic to mouth ratio. (laughs) (laughs) What? 26. Okay. April 9th, 1990. Is Emma Watson in 1990? Yeah, probably. I think she's September. Anyway, yes, go on. Okay, Emma Watson's a movie star, Kristen Stewart's a movie star. How dare you say Kristen Stewart is not a movie star? Oh How dare God. you? She, she's a movie actress, but she's not like a she's not like a red carpety whatever. What? She's a Chanel ambassador. She is. You guys, should she be a bit of a higher profile Chanel ambassador? I did not know this. She's pretty high profile Chanel ambassador. Uh, what did we say Kristen Stewart's birth year was? In 1990, you said April 1990. Emma oh Watson. Oh my God, Emma Watson, April 1990. Oh my God, we're down to the day, you guys. Yeah, like the day. What did I say the date of April 9th, I think? I don't know. April 9th, Kristen Stewart, April 15th. They're a week apart. Whoa. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. What is that astrological sign? Like Chinese or English? I'll or take either. <laughs> I said English. <laughs> um, I don't know. I will check and you continue. Thank you very much. 1978. So it's the horse. Oh, you guys, look at me. They're the year of the horse. Yes. Are they? Yes. 1990. See my my training here? And uh, I don't know what April is. Aries? Anyway, the difference between them is that Emma Watson is about to embark on a big fairy princess role as a 26-year-old, and she's on a massive tour about it. And Kristen Stewart's next big massive role is not as a fairy princess. Yeah, but they, she's already had a massive role. She's already had Twilight and Snow White and the Huntsman. So it's an equal. So, okay. It's equal. Harry no, Potter, let's not Twilight. Pretend. Harry Potter. I now shoot me. I'm comparing. Do Harry you understand Potter and what I go through here? It's not <laughs> Harry Potter and Twilight that is the issue, as I will agree with you that they are similar in franchise scope. But you're not going to get away with comparing Snow White and the Huntsman to Beauty and the Beast. Come now. I know, but like, if you're talking profile, you can't tell me that Emma Watson's profile is bigger than Kristen Stewart. No, I'm saying they're different. You just care about Emma Watson more than you care about I Kristen think Stewart. You're, you're so biased. I think you're misinterpreting what I'm talking about. I'm saying that Kristen Stewart is a more interesting performer and actress, oh. and she chooses more interesting roles. Yeah, but she's still a movie star. She's a movie star. She stars in movies. It's not the same thing. Don't be pedantic about language. You're a writer. (laughs) In the interest of time, we will leave this up to you. Is Kristen Stewart a movie star or a movie actor? Let us know. Does she star in movies? Or is she a movie star? You can go ahead and put quotes around it. Email us, duanna at laneygossip.com, laney at laneygossip.com, or tweet us at Duanna Elise, D-U-A-N-A-E-L-I-S-E, or at laneygossip. Anyway, we are about to fight about one more thing, because I suspect that when I bring up that it is the 20th anniversary of the premiere of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You're going to tell me you never watched the show. 
Well, you already know I never watch the show. I watch the movie. It's not the same thing. <laughs> um, no, I've never watched one episode of Buffy. I know that there's a spike and an angel. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna like reach across this table and throttle me right now. <laughs> I know that and Emily, our site manager, is going to throttle me too, because I know Emily's a big Buffy fan, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, no, I've never watched a fucking episode of Buffy. And yeah, fine. Happy birthday. Is this happy 20th anniversary, Buffy? Is this incidental or is this some sort of like mission? I didn't care. Okay. Tell me the other shows that were on the air at the same time as Buffy. Oh, gosh. Let's see. Buffy premiered in 1997. It was a mid-season replacement. It came on in March. The West Wing. Yeah. Sure. That's an Thank hour you. of your week. What else Thank do you, you have to do? It's an hour of your week. Look, for as long as I've been a part of Blaney Gossip, we've talked about how I turn out to be right about television. Haven't we? I think we have. Buffy. I am right. Some. I was more, I was right about Big Little Lies. I didn't argue with you. <laughs> but anyway. Buffy, more than any show that we've talked about, possibly with the exception of The West Wing, is one of those shows for which people have real feeling that crafted who they became as adults. It is the show that made a lot of people, myself included, first considered the idea that they should write television, that they should be in television. And Buffy is the show, bar none, including The West Wing, that brought to the public consciousness the idea of the showrunner. Now we know what the showrunner is, the head woman or man who is in charge of all the creator, who is the head writer, but also makes the decisions about what the show is and where it goes and how it becomes. Who is the showrunner for Buffy? (laughs) Do you guys want to all yell at her at once? (laughs) Oh, was it Joss Whedon? Yes, it was Joss Whedon. We're going to get in so much trouble for the audio issues right now, but I can't believe that I have to yell this at you. Okay. Sorry. That was, that was an honest question. I knew we were talking about Joss Whedon, spoiler alert, but I was like, oh, wait a minute. Who is the showrunner for Buffy? Okay. Fine. Okay, but Joss I Whedon. Be, thank you. I want to be clear about the reason, though, that Joss Whedon was the first, and that is that... Joss Whedon engaged with fans at a time when Aaron Sorkin said they were, what did he call them? Um, moo wearing parliament smoking <laughs> basement dwellers banging on their keyboards. One, two, three. Fucking Sorkin. Fucking Sorkin. So Joss Whedon and the Buffy writers engaged with fans. They told stories that are still resonant today Uh, I really suspect there will be many of you who will write to lecture Lainey about why she needs to watch Buffy, why she will get really incredible things about it. But what I want to talk about today is actually a quote from Joss. They were interviewing him, and of course, he's gone on to direct both of the Avengers movies. We're really plugging the Avengers tonight. And Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog and many, many other things, and write many other movies. He is kind of one of Hollywood's most successful auteurs. But I want to talk about a quote 
that he gave in the context of asking about Buffy 20 years ago, uh, they were kind of asking him about what he, what he sort of did and what impact Buffy left. One of the most famous Joss Whedon quotes is that people ask him, why do you write strong female characters? And he says, because you're still asking me that question, uh, which is a version of, because it's 2015, uh, by Justin Trudeau. But in the context of this interview, he says, and I quote, I didn't help out. I didn't make a point of hiring female directors. I didn't make a point of hiring people of color. I didn't think it through past where I had gotten. I wasn't necessarily part of the solution. I was, say, right in the middle. I've learned a lot from Buffy executive producer Marty Noxon. She always looked after everybody who was coming up under her and made sure that they were moving forward. She had a real understanding of inequality, of lack of representation that I didn't. She was very community-minded and not as much of a selfish prick as I am. I didn't have the bandwidth to care about humans. I hope I treated people with respect, but I definitely missed some of the point. So. So it's 20 years then. 20 years ago, yes. Okay. And you can look at Joss Whedon's entire body of work and see what you think about that quote. But my question is, knowing that a lot of the lens that we look at a lot of uh, projects through can sometimes be, you know, 20 years ago. If you look at Buffy, there are not a lot of people of color. There are probably few to no writers or directors of color and relatively few women. I can name the women on that staff by name. uh, And that's only partly because of nerdism. My question is, what does a quote like this make you feel? Um, And there were a couple of uh, characters or actors of color, but uh, they are not core. Can I walk you through my thought process? Yeah, go. So my thought process was, first... How old is Joss Whedon? Joss Whedon is 52 years of age. Which I looked up. Thank you. So if it's the 20-year anniversary of Buffy, then he would have been 32? When the series uh, premiered, okay. uh, he, it was based, of course, on the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer, to which it bears little to no resemblance, which came out five years before. So he would have been 27 at the time. Okay. So Buffy premiered when he was... In and around 32. Right. So 32, Joss Whedon. So I'm walking you through my thought process. I'm with you. And is Joss Whedon, and I I apologize for my thought process. I'm trying to be honest, but if I offend, you teach me, everybody. 32 and 97, if we're getting precise. Is Joss Whedon gay? No, he's not. Okay. Joss Whedon is married and has two children. Is that? Um, am I the first person to have asked that question? Uh, I don't know, because if you are a Joss acolyte, as people tend to refer to themselves as, he's quite open about his family and, you know, his wife acts in things. So I don't know if it would have been a question that would have come up. Why did you ask, since we're there? For some reason, and this will explain you know, I hope my thought process, my train of thought, there are, to me, I, I associate, there are parts of Joss Whedon that I associate with Ryan Murphy. 
Is that out of line? Uh, I don't think so in the sense that they are both auteurs, uh, that they both have really precise and really defined points of view that are not always respected by the mainstream, certainly that favor women. Certainly, Ryan Murphy, like Joss Whedon, takes a lot of his strength from portraying strong women and discussing the conflicts that they kind of go through. And not coincidentally, both of those men started their career on shows that were nominally based in high school. Ryan Murphy, uh, of course, started with Popular, which is something we'll get to at another time because it is much under-celebrated. Okay, now I know I can see why I'm conflating the two, right? That's right, yes. Now you see where I'm heading. I understand where you're where you're coming from, yes. And I would just argue that it's bullshit that men who respect female characters or writing for women have to be relegated to high school, even though there's also nothing wrong with high school characters sure. as entertainment. Yes. Please continue. So that's where you ask that question and I... Instead of answering your question, Joanna, I walk you through my thought process and what I think about Joss Whedon. So, to me, these are the things I previously knew before you edumacated me today or I had to laugh and, you know, walk into that, oh, was he the showrunner for Buffy? So, most of my association with Joss Whedon right now, of course, is the Avengers. Right. Given that the Avengers has been a running theme tonight. And that's super nerd culture. Right. And I think oftentimes of nerd culture and uh, being on the fringe. Right. Right? And that's where I was going with my thought process about being on the fringe, being the person or of the people who are not of the mainstream, and whether or not those people are expected to be more sympathetic. And I think before uh, everybody yells at you, um, well, actually, uh, I'll get there. I'm uh, sure people will yell at me, but I, this is, I'm like I said, what I, we're exploring the question. What I wanted to get to is that Joss Whedon would 100% say that he was one of those people, one of the marginalized. Uh, for various reasons, he was a nerd. Uh, there's a boarding school story in there somewhere. There are reasons. So I think that your sort of presumptions are not off base. But what would you have expected if I had given the opposite answer, I guess, is the question. What are your expectations of a straight writer? So here's where I'm coming from. When I said the expectation for somebody who's been on the outside, right, is, and I hope that I can... I can somehow communicate this, is that I think about when you've been on the outside or you've been, or you self-perceive to be an outsider, does that come with the expectation that you should know how it feels, that you should be able to see and therefore hopefully endeavor to represent those who are also outsiders. And I'm going to throw a wrench into this, and that wrench and his name is Milo Yiannopoulos. And I think about Milo Yiannopoulos, the 
the gay right wing white nationalist? Is that, would you debate me on that? No, if, if, no, I don't think we'd have to dig very long before we could find proof. Right. And I think about many of the conversations I've been having with people in the LGBTQ community. Um, and they're varied and they're definitely, I mean, they're not a monolith. We can't call anything a monolith. But what I'm hearing a lot of is this fucking guy, he's gay. And the gay rights movement for how many decades has been arguing for equality. And here he comes from the right, completely, um, you know, insensitive is the gentlest word, I think. Um, insensitive, blind, myopic to those who have been neglected, who have been um, removed from the conversation. Who is this person? And then I think about the conversations I've been having with our, our friends from the black community, from the black gay community, who've said, you know what? The fact of the matter is, is that white members of the LGBT community aren't often on our side. And to go back to Joss Whedon, when you talk about members of those who consider themselves of the marginalized, of the alienated, of the outsiders, whether or not we should expect that they would know how it feels to be left out, sometimes they have their blind spots too. Well, you know, to oversimplify what you just said, I think everybody can only do what they can do. Is mm -hmm. that true? And I would be extremely remiss if I did not point out right now that Joss Whedon is the reason that LGBT relationships appear on television. That's not too bold a statement. Uh, the characters of Willow and Tara on Buffy were the first same-sex relationship that was a relationship. That is to say, not only was Willow gay, not only did she meet a girl, but they sustained a relationship for two seasons plus, uh, give or take a, a certain tragic death. So that was, I cannot overstate how revolutionary that was at the time. I cannot overstate how revolutionary it continues to be, uh, give or take the bury your gaze trope, which is another conversation that we'll have at another time. So it's not to say that this was in any way uh, somebody who was reductive or anything other than forward thinking. And I can't help but think, I wonder which other showrunner of 20 years ago would openly say, hey, look at all the faults I had. Look at all the blind spots that I didn't get to. Yeah. So I'm curious about what, how that makes you feel now. Well, I, listen, I think that like I am a fan of the Joss Whedon's work that I know. I think we've established now that I don't know his work from Buffy, but I do know his work in Avengers. I love Avengers. 
I can't tell you, I mean, I think I've said on the blog so many times how many times I've watched it, which is like probably at this point in excess of 40. Oh my God. I can quote that movie to you. But when we talk about Joss Whedon now and 20 years later. Or anybody, you and, know. Yeah. Can, can they revise their own history? I don't even know if I think it's revising your history. I just, I think it's, I think there's a lot of people who would shrug and be like, eh, that was the times. I don't think there, I think there are very few people who would look back and say, oh, I could have done better. Or is it like, stop revising your history and just let me take it for what it was? Well, Duanna, we could revise our own history. I mean, the history of Laney Gossip is going on 15 years and- there are times when I look back at the things that I used to say, published and out there, um, that I probably don't love right now and wouldn't agree with right now. So if you want to ask me about Joss Whedon and is he quote unquote allowed to say, hey, I didn't know better then. I know better now, but I still don't know the best. I am trying to know better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not just allowed. I just... I feel like we're saying the same thing from two different sides, which is I think it's fucking rare to be as big as he is, to be as successful as he is, to, sure. ha- to yep. have something that is that yep. people are coming back to 20 years later and being like, oh, yeah, it was amazing and I did a whole lot, but also here's a lot of areas where I fell down. Fuck yeah. I mean, how long has it been since Nipplegate? What? That was Super Bowl 2003? 2001, I thought. Yeah. What? Fine. Anyway, it's been at least 14 years, possibly more. Has fucking Justin Timberlake gone back and regretted his behavior, his lack of support for, I will fucking mention that asshole as, as many chances as I get. But you're giving him more mentions. I mean, we could do this another way. <laughs> you know who wouldn't go back and talk about all the ways that he was wrong? He wouldn't. Justin Timberlake wouldn't. You know who else wouldn't? Come on, I'm setting 2004. It, it was 2004, by the way. So 17 years. 13 years. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My math sucks. Um, so 13 years. Yeah. Justin you know Timberlake sh- still hasn't. You know another showrunner who uh, wouldn't go back and talk about all the mistakes he made? In the Fucking Sorkin? He- Fucking Sorkin. <laughs> Listen, all this is perhaps an elaborate setup to say... Do you have to care about Buffy the Vampire Slayer 20 years later? Yes, you do. I suspect many of you already do. Do you, Lainey Gossip? <laughs> As I, I avoid making eye contact with you. Do you have to care about Buffy the Vampire Slayer? First of all, yes, you do have to care. Second of all, <sighs> I await you texting me probably in the middle of the night when you're on vacation somewhere. That's always what I do. And the the timing's all off and saying to me, why didn't you tell me about this show? Bitch, I'm still trying to get through Gilmore Girls. That's another conversation (laughs) for another time. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to pause on Gilmore and go to Buffy or finish Gilmore and then go to Buffy? No, I want you to go to Buffy while continuing Gilmore. People contain multitudes. You can be more than one series from uh, the late 90s and early 2000s. There you go. We've given you lots of homework on this episode of Show Your Work. There's a lot to yell at us about. There's a lot to discuss among yourselves. Tell us about 
whether or not you consider Kristen Stewart a movie star or an actor who stars in movies. Tell us about the most iconic role Scarlett Johansson has ever been in. Tell us about whether or not I need to care about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And if you know that she does, tell me whether your favorite episode is Hush or Superstar. And we will be back next week, but here is a sneak peek. We will be talking about... I want to talk about that big plot point that they dropped last week that will be continued and elaborated on by the time you hear this episode. That's coming up next week, along with much more arguing and bantering and urging everybody to show your work. Thanks for listening. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. And we will be back next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.